you have your Bibles uh, with you today, let's turn to the book of Ephesians one more time. And I want to finish up uh, chapter 2. I want to cover verses 19 through 22 in this lesson, but for the sake of the context, I want to read uh, 11 through 22 to get started. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, done by hands in the flesh. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise with no hope and without the Almighty in the world. But now in Christ Yeshua, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he did away with, in his flesh, he did away with the law of commandments and regulation, so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, the members of Yahweh's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Yeshua himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together in him, and is growing into a holy sanctuary in Yahweh, in whom you also are being built together for Yahweh's dwelling in the Spirit. When I started writing this sermon, I kept thinking back of all the doctrines that's been covered thus far in the the epistle. And needless to say, there's been a lot of them, from predestination in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, all the way to the glorification, I guess, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, and we've not even covered the last four chapters. And everything in between has just been loaded with so many different areas of doctrine that it's almost impossible to be a scholar in every aspect of it. But I kept asking myself, I said, what is it that divides men? And taking these last verses into consideration, the last 11 verses into consideration, there's a common vein that runs through them, and that's the separation from men, from one another, and also the separation of Yahweh from men. And so I started to ask myself, what is, it, what is it that causes the adversity between men? We know the what separates men from Yahweh, that being sin. But what is it that separates men from one another? Well, I don't know that it would be any different. I don't know that it would be anything different that separates two men from one another or mankind than, than that which separates us from Yahweh. And if, if sin drives a wedge between men and Yahweh, why wouldn't it be the same thing that separates men from men? So then my mind starts to run a little deeper, and it can't run too deep because it'll bottom out. It's like, a, it's like one of them uh, lures. You reel it too fast, and it starts bouncing on the bottom of the lake. You know, you have to let off of it and reel it slow because I do that if I... I dig too deep, it just bottoms out, and I don't get anything out of it. But, but I'm thinking, what causes a man to sin other than it just being his carnal nature? What, what causes a man to sin? And, and what I come up with, and I don't know that I'm right in this, but I believe that I am, I, I think it's pride. I think pride is the reason for all sin. Pride and selfishness. The only reason that we would ever disobey Yahweh's commandment would be on the basis of pride. I believe that's how sin entered the world. Eve was told that she... She wasn't like the Almighty in, in the book of Genesis. And, uh, but if she would eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, she would become just like him. Just like him, she would, she would know good from evil. And because she thought to elevate herself to a higher status, she ate of the tree 
and Adam did also. Sin entered the world, and since then we've been under a curse. As we've been going through the verses 11 through 22 over the last several months, it seems to me that pride is the reason for the division between the Judites and the other nations, or the native-borns and the stranger, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. It just seems to be the common thread. Within the sin of pride, many other sins are generated. Uh, hate, greed, selfishness, strife, envy, so on and so forth. And the only way that I know that you could reconcile a problem where there is a division between two objects is to make them equal. And I think that's, Paul, I think what's, that's Paul's message. I think that's what he's doing. And it has been for really all of chapter 2. Remember verses 1 through 3, he, Paul tells us in, in chapter 2, we're all under wrath because of lack of perfection. You know, before Yahweh. In verses 4 through 10, he says we were, he was gracious enough. Yahweh, speaking of Yahweh, he was gracious enough to give everyone that he chose eternal life. And that was solely a gift of Yahweh's. It's not anything that we did or doesn't have anything to do with who we are. And then in verses 11 through 22, what we're covering now is he explains the reason for the equalizing everyone into one body. That's, that's his message here. So he tells us how we're depraved because of our pride and our sin, and then he tells us about how he's rescued us from it and with his grace. And then in verses 11 through 22, he tells us why he did it. This is, that's what we're covering today. And it's amazing to me that from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the world, Yahweh planned out all the events of time and, time, and the timing of those events in his master plan and how he orchestrated everything. He just puts it all together and piece by piece it unfolds. Yahweh... Before, before Adam ever sinned, before pride ever right, raised up in Adam and Eve's life, Yahweh's already slain his only begotten son. Before it ever took place, Yahweh put Adam in the garden, and he put him in the garden with a backup plan. You know what I'm saying? He, he put him in the garden knowing that Adam would fail. And uh, so, he's, so he's there. So before he put Adam in the garden, he's already made a way of escape in mankind for mankind in his master plan. Revelation thirteen eight, like I said, says that Yeshua was slain before the world began. He knew he's going to mass produce sinners, and so he had to have a he had to have a cure, and the cure for sinners was his one and only son. It's phenomenal to me. Yahweh's plan is amazing to me. It just blows my mind that something can be so far thought out, and then watch it come to fruition. We just see pieces of it, but Yahweh's got the whole thing put together. But getting back to the lesson. Um, it seems to me that pride has been bred through and through all the way up until now, and it will continue until, I guess, the return of our Lord. And this was a major problem in Paul's days, just, just as it is today. We, we talked about that in previous lessons. And it's one that Paul undoubtedly spent a lot of time trying to correct. This is, this is his message in a lot of his epistles. The book of Galatians deals with it. Uh, I think um, Colossians deals with it. The book of Ephesians, of course, that's the one that we're in. But I think this was a common this was a common problem in his day, in his era. There was a lot of there was a lot of uh, self righteousness amongst people, and hey, we're better than you. The Greeks used to think that they were better than than other people, or the barbarians. They called them barbarians, as a matter of fact. And uh, so this was this was common, and, and it's not something that nobody knew anything about. But Paul Paul preached on it. One group of people thought that they had something that no one else could partake of. The Judites thought that they were somehow more worthy than anyone else, things like that. But remember in verse 11, Paul said, Remember when you were called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. Then in verse 12, he tells the new converts, You were without Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant. 
So there was definitely a separation between the quote-unquote chosen people, the Judahites, and anyone who was entering to become a part of the congregation in Jerusalem. These people were called the uncircumcised. They were considered non-covenant members, and they were non-covenant members up until the time. Paul even tells them this in verse 12. We talked about the, we talked about the sign. Last time I, was, I, I taught, we talked about the sign that hung in the temple con- complex in the courts. And uh, how it said that the Gentiles couldn't enter certain parts of the temple. They couldn't go into certain parts of the complex because they weren't of the right ethnicity or they weren't of the right race or they, weren't, they, were, they were considered filth and they weren't allowed to go in and worship the mighty one that they had become to know. They weren't allowed in there. And uh, so there was major adversity between the multitude of people that lived in and around Jerusalem. It's not just Judites that live in Jerusalem. Now, we've got a mixed mass multitude of living there. And there's a lot of people living there. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of adversity there. But then in verse 13, Paul starts to tell the people who were originally considered outsiders just how they weren't outsiders anymore. He says, but now... I love it when Paul says, but, because right behind it, you're fixing to get something good. He's fixing to change things, and, and I, I like it. I've, I've noticed that as I've been teaching through the book of Ephesians. But he says in verse 13, but now in Christ, you who are far away have been brought near. By the blood of the Messiah, you have been reconciled to Yahweh. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful to me. It sounds simple. We say it fast. You don't get a lot out of it, but you think about what reconciliation is in the sense to Yahweh. You think about where you were and where you are now, and that's something that he did. It's not something that you did. It's a big deal, you know. But he says, but now in Christ, you who are far away have been brought near. The blood of Yeshua has reconciled you to Yahweh. Yahweh's master plan had a provision built in for people like me. Had a provision built in for people like Adam. Had a provision built in for sinners just like you and I, you know. And I'm thankful for that. Verse 14 says this. He, speaking of Yeshua, is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Then verse 16 explains, He did this that he might reconcile both groups to Yahweh in one body through the cross and putting hostility to death. I want you to catch something right here. The first group was not reconciled to Yahweh any more than the second group was prior to the cross. Those Judites, they were no more reconciled to Yahweh than those Gentiles, whatever you consider the Gentiles to be. They weren't no more reconciled. Just because they lived and served in the temple, they're not standing right before Yahweh. Yeshua's not died yet. That's the only way that anybody can stand before Yahweh righteous. You know what I mean? He has to die. So the Judites are no more righteous than the Gentiles. Until Yeshua dies, Abraham's not forgiven. He had faith in in Yeshua, but it 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 takes the blood of Yeshua to, to cleanse all those who were before him and all those that will come after him. Amen. Amen. But um, neither one of them were righteous until the death on the tree. The Judites thought that they were, but even though they were, they, they still weren't reconciled unto Yahweh until the Son. Both groups of children were children under wrath according to the judgment of Yahweh until the provision that was given through Christ. The ones who thought they had it all, the promises and the covenants, the law, etc., they were just as lost as the ones that never had anything. And then in verse 17 it says this, Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you who are near. Both groups received the same gospel. One of them didn't get a gospel, then the other one. They both received the same gospel. 
And Yahweh's just equalizing the playing field right here, and he's doing it all with his son. Paul says that you were both lost, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, and you were both found in verse 16. There's no one person better than the other. There's no one group that's better than the other. One can't brag that I'm somebody and you're not somebody. They can't do that. In verse 17, it says he proclaimed the gospel of peace to both groups. And the word proclaimed there is the Greek word, eugalitso. It's what we get our um, English word evangelized from. So it means that the... It means that he came and preached the gospel. He preached the gospel message. And he didn't just do it to the Judites that were there in Jerusalem. He preached it to everybody. He says he preached it to both groups. He proclaimed the gospel. He preached it. He preached a gospel of peace. We talked about that last time I talked. Not a gospel of separation and animosity towards people, but rather one of harmony and one of peace. The message was always peace. Then in verse 18, Paul says, Through him, Yeshua, we we both have access by one spirit, to the Father. Once again, we went over this last time I taught also. Paul says we both, meaning both groups, one is no better than the other. We both have access to the to the Spirit, by, the, by one Spirit to the Father. Paul takes the focus off of men through the course of this whole chapter, and he places it all on Yahweh and what he did for us through his Son. Though the, through the perfect works of Yeshua, we all have access to the Father in one Spirit. This is a unity that we should all strive for. It's unity at its finest. We all, those that's, we're speaking of those who are in Christ, should walk in unity because we all should be governed by the same Spirit. We should be governed by the Spirit of Yahweh. Christ is the one who gives us access. We talked about the Greek word prosagogias last time I talked. Uh, I explained that the word carried the meaning of an introducer. Yeshua is our introducer to the king. Without him, there's no way to stand before a holy king. It's like if uh, you were trying to, st- to walk up into a castle and talk to a monarch, you know, the monarch of, of a country. You can't do that. Somebody's going to have to open the door. They're going to take you before this monarch or this king, and they're going to say, this is so-and-so, this is the king, you got the floor. You know, or you, you may talk. You, you wouldn't bust in, into a king's house, throw the doors open, say, I need to speak to you. You'd probably lose your head. You need somebody to escort you. And the same applies here in the word access. Yeshua will be the one that introduces both groups, not just the Gentiles, but also the Judites. He'll introduce both to the king. We're talking about the king of heaven and earth. What a powerful word hidden in the Greek language is lost in the English translation. So this is our context. That's our context. I did all that just to get back to uh, verse 19, and I don't mean to delay, but... Um, this is our context. Both groups made one by reconciliation to the Father. And when thinking about the division here, I think about the prodigal son. I think about that and how he received all of his inheritance. And he left his father's house. He went off into a foreign land, squandered all of his father's money away that he'd been given, all of his inheritance. And he quickly figured out that the way of life that he'd chosen just wasn't, wasn't what he thought it'd be. So he decides to go back, and he arrives back home, and, what, and his father did what? What does he do? Had compassion on him. Reaches out to hug him. Has compassion on him. The Bible says that he's seen him far off, and he has compassion. And he called for a celebration at his, because his son had returned home. He dressed him in the best robe, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger, called his servants and said, bring me a fattened calf, we're going to have a celebration. He rejoices about the return of his lost child, but then pride enters the story. The oldest son hears the music playing in the background. He's standing out in the field being a servant. 
he hears the music playing in the background, and he asks his servant, he says, what's the noise that I hear? He said, it's your brother. Your, your father has seen your brother, your youngest brother has returned home, and your father's having a party for him. And he didn't want to go. The, the oldest brother didn't want to go. So he starts whining to his dad. He says, look, dad, I've been a slave for you for many years. For many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you haven't given me a celebration for me and my friends. But when your son, who devoured all your assets with prostitutes, comes home, you throw him a feast. You run out there, put your arms around him, you welcome, back, welcome him back home, you give him a ring, wrap a robe around him, put sandals on his feet and say, bring me a fattened calf, we're fixing to have a feast. And it's just pride. He thought that he was due something that his younger brother wasn't due. He thought he deserved his father's attention more because of all that he had done right and all that the younger brother had done wrong. It sounds just like the Pharisees that Paul's dealing with here. Just like the Judites that Paul's dealing with here. They stayed in Judah the whole time. They've kept the temple. They've kept the temple complex. They've done everything right, so they think. They think they deserve everything, and this is their God, and it's only His God, only their God, and we're not sharing them with anybody else. We've got them all to ourselves. We're doing it all right. The problem is, Yahweh's Yahweh. And uh, He doesn't listen to the Judites as to what he's supposed to do, no more than the prodigal's father listened to his oldest son as to what he's supposed to do. The, the father, he tells his oldest son, he says, son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and rejoice because the, because the brother was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. See, folks, what, what's happening in Paul's day, it still happens now. We want to have something no one else has. We think if we work hard, we should get more. And that might be the case with your job, but that's not the case with grace. It doesn't work that way. Amen, it's, grace is receiving something that you don't deserve, not something that you work for. See, the lost son here, he didn't do anything to deserve the compassion from his father, just like you and I haven't done anything to receive the compassion from our father. But that's the whole key. Compassion is gift. A gift that's given. Grace is a gift that's given. It's not something that you earn. The same way the father loved the lost child just as much as the one that was obedient, it's the same way that Yahweh loves whom he wants to choose. He doesn't, he doesn't have to say, hey, well, the Judites here that have you know, kept the temple up and did a pretty good job about it, I need to listen to them because they really don't want me to love these people that are, that are out here. He don't. He's Yahweh. We don't get to say who he can love and who he can't love. We can't say, hey, that person doesn't look like me or act like me or smell like me or do the things that I do. We can't say that Yahweh can't love them because he can. He can. The son in the parable was reconciled with his father. That's what we're supposed to be with our father. We're supposed to be reconciled. There's a reconciliation that takes place there, and that's what Yahweh's done for all the saints. He's reconciled us. With him, and he's done so through the blood of his only begotten son. That's the price that he paid. He didn't sacrifice a bull. He gave you his only begotten son. Yahweh, Yahweh has, provi- has provided a means of reconciliation. And he's not just provided it for those who thought they were blameless, but he also provided it for those who know they're lost. With that in mind, let's read verses 19 through 22 again, and then we'll, uh, then I'll get into those verses and we'll wrap this thing up. Verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, a member of the Almighty's household, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Yeshua himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being fitted together for Yahweh's dwelling in the Spirit. I want you to pick up three metaphors that are used in the next four verses. Um, number one, you may want to draw a line under, under these in your Bible if you want to, you can. Um, number one, fellow citizens. This is a metaphor that is used of the saints. Number two, Yahweh's household. And number three, holy sanctuary. You'll find those in the next four verses. They may, they may read different in your Bible. But these three metaphors are applied to those who have been redeemed from the former state and have been reconciled to Yahweh through his son. Verse 19 says, So then, meaning because of this, that's what so then means, meaning because of this, because you have been reconciled, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of Yahweh's household. Two of the metaphors are used here and are supplied to the new converts, fellow citizens, and Yahweh's household. Those are the two metaphors. I know he's talking about new converts here because of the fact that Paul says you are no longer foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints. These foreigners and strangers have been converted from their former state which was lost to their current state which is found. And they've been added to the number, if you will. Notice he doesn't say that you have been added to Israel or to the Judites. He doesn't say you become the circumcised, but rather he says that you have become fellow citizens with the saints, i.e., those who believe. And members of Yahweh's household, not only have we been added to the citizenship, but we also become members of Yahweh's household. And this is super important because of the use of the word foreigners and strangers. The word foreigner comes from the Greek word prokoika, if I'm saying that right. I don't speak Greek, but I kind of dig around with the words a little bit, but it comes from the Greek word prokoika, and it's used of someone who is a friend, but not part of the family. He's not really a citizen of anything. He's a guest, and that's the word foreigner. But the word stranger comes from the Greek word zenoi, and it means that you're an outcast. It means you're wretched, you're vile, you're rotten, a keep-at-a-distance kind of person. Don't want you anywhere around me. Um... See, the two are completely different, but they're both non-family members. You're either a guest with no house rights, or you're a wretched outcast. It doesn't really matter. You're either a stranger or a foreigner. Either way, you're not part of Yahweh's family. Either way. But that's no longer true. You're now fellow citizen of Yahweh's community. You're members of Yahweh's house, your family. Through Yeshua, you've you've become joint heirs of Yahweh's kingdom supernaturalized, so to speak. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Somebody asked me in years to come, does a census, and asked me in years to come, says, where do you, you know, sends the census out. I could put on the census that I live in Buckhead, but my citizenship is in heaven or in Yahweh's kingdom. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. We're citizens of heaven. And as for the family part of this, we're Yahweh's children. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 says, Yeshua was faithful as a son over his household, whose household we are if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. 
The hope that he's speaking of is the hope that we have in Christ. See, not only are we citizens, but we're also family members. Yeshua is our elder brother, and Yahweh is our father. So we become fellow citizens and part of Yahweh's household. Isn't that something to be proud of? You want to boast about something? Don't boast about your lineage here on earth. You boast about, you boast about that eternal lineage that you have. I don't care what you're made up of. I don't care what seed you come from. John the Baptist didn't care what seed those Israelites come from that were standing by the river. He didn't care. We're, uh, we're seeds of Abraham by faith. You know what I mean? If you want to be proud of something, be proud that Yahweh's redeemed your soul and it doesn't really matter what you were. Let's look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Yeshua himself as the cornerstone. Now before I get to the apostles and the prophets in this verse, I'm going to do this backwards. I want to talk about the chief cornerstone a little bit because the cornerstone had to be laid first. So we'll just work first. I'm a builder, that's what I do. Um, not much of one, but I, I participated a little bit. However, I'm not so familiar with the way that people built things in times past, such as in Yeshua's day. But from my understanding, they used rocks, boulders, mud, stone, so forth, things like that to build their houses and their buildings. And while the process was somewhat different then than it is today, I think the principle is basically the same thing. For us today, in the building world, in order, in order to build a building or a house or something like that, we must first grade a place out to build a structure, and then we'll lay the footing, lay the footing and then onto the foundation. But in their day, I believe that they probably just dug down to hard dirt or rock or something like that, and they would start to lay a stone, cornerstone. They would build their foundation from there. Now, the foundation that may be what you would call today a uh, crawl space or a basement or something like that. So what we would call foundation. First this goes up and then the wood structures that we build rest on top of the foundation. The house sits on the foundation if you understand what I'm trying to say. When it says that Yeshua was the chief cornerstone, it means that he was not only the first piece laid, but also the most important piece laid. He was the chief In Isaiah 28 and 16, Yahweh says, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshaken. The one who believes in that stone, the one who who puts their trust in that cornerstone that it won't move, he he will be unshaken. Now this stone that Yahweh is talking about is Yeshua. He was the strong stone, the perfect stone, the tested stone that would, that would be the cornerstone for the entire building. The cornerstone must be laid first because it's the stone that interlocked every other stone. It ties the corners of the building together. Every one of them ties to the cornerstone. It's also the stone that all the lines, that all the lines would have been pulled off of in order to keep the building straight, to keep it level, to keep it plumb. It's got to be perfect. The cornerstone is the chief stone. It's got to be perfect. If I put a, if I'm building this desk right here, and let's just say this is the foundation, and I put the cornerstone right here, I would pull all my lines off of this cornerstone. It would have to be level. It would have to be perfect because every part of the wall ties back into this stone. It's the chief stone. It's the, it's the holding. It's the glue. It's everything that keeps it all together. Now Yahweh thought enough about this stone to make it the most important piece of the building. Well, my father's a builder. He has, a uh, matter of fact, both of my fathers are builders. Uh, my heavenly father's a builder, and my earthly father's a builder. I come from a long line of builders, <laughs> a real long line. But um, my father taught me everything I know 
about building for the most part. And I praise Yahweh for him. I wish he was listening to this sermon. Uh, if he ever listens to it, Dad will love you. But uh, he's been building houses for about 50 years. And when I was a kid, he uh, he used to tell me, he said, there's three parts to a house, son. That's what you need to know. And I and I, I'd look at him, I'm thinking, man, there's a the door and window and carpet and paint and siding and trim. And I'm thinking... I don't know about all that, but he says there's three parts of house. He said there's the foundation, the framing, and the rest of the junk. And uh, he says the foundation and the framing ain't right. The rest of the junk won't work. And um, and there was a, there's a lot of truth to that, you know. But at the same time, if your foundation, I, I tell you this, from a biblical standpoint, if your foundation's not right, the rest of it doesn't matter. The foundation is the most important thing of the whole house. We were carpenters by trade. I framed houses for a living. That's what I did. We put a lot of pride in the way we framed. You know, we, we did it right, thought we did it right anyway. and uh, But that foundation that was up underneath our framing, way more important than what we were putting on top of it. It was way more important because if that foundation crumbled, if it wasn't straight, if it wasn't right, none of the stuff that we were building on top of it would have ever worked. And uh, Yahweh thought enough about that cornerstone that he said, I'm going to pick the best cornerstone to put there, that being my only begotten son. Your house won't stand if the foundation isn't secure and right. It's the same way with the gospel message. If you don't have the chief cornerstone and the proper foundation, your beliefs won't stand. This is why I believe that Yahweh chose the most important piece to be his son. The first part of verse 20 says that we have become citizens and are no, the, the last part of 19 and the first part of verse 20 says that we have become citizens and are no longer strangers but citizens of the household of Yahweh. The household was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now we could say that the apostles and the prophets are the foundations. Some people read that verse this way and I believe that that could be true in, in some sense. However, I, I disagree with that a little bit. Let me tell you why. I think that Paul means, I think what Paul means is that they laid the foundations, not that they were the foundation. I believe that Yeshua is the foundation corner piece. I believe that the apostles and the prophets laid the rest of the foundation. I believe the foundation of, of doctrine being the gospel connected to the chief cornerstone, that being Christ, was the foundation of Yahweh's holy temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9 through 11, 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11, Paul speaks of Yahweh's builders in this way, and he says this. He says, For we are Yahweh's co-workers. You are Yahweh's field and Yahweh's building. According to Yahweh's grace that was given to me, as a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation, and another builds on it. But each man must be careful how he builds because no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, and that is Yeshua, the, the Messiah. What Paul's talking about here is the essence of the gospel message. That's the, that's the foundation that he's talking about. Paul has laid a foundation of the gospel so that the household, household of Yahweh can be built on it. The gospel message is what Yahweh's household is formed on. So Yahweh set the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation, and we're all being built on the top of what they, they went before us and did. But Paul clearly states, no one can lay any other foundation other than what's already been given, which is Christ. So if your foundation is anything other than salvation by faith in Christ, then your belief will not stand. It won't stand. That's Paul's message. That's his message. So back to Ephesians, let's look at verse 21. 
The whole building is being fitted together in Him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in Yahweh or in the Lord. So check this out, guys. The most important part of the building is what? The foundation. And what does that consist of? Christ, the chief cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets. Christ is the cornerstone, the most holy. The prophets and the apostles, the second most holy, being the foundation. What's built on top of these? The building of Yahweh, right? That's what you and I are. We're the building. Paul says that the whole building is being fitted together in Him, talking about Christ. We're all being tied to the cornerstone and and are all growing in Him into a holy sanctuary. That's the third metaphor. We're being made into something perfect. We're being sanctified and refined, and as we grow stronger and stronger in Yeshua, it just becomes a perfect picture. It just becomes a perfect picture. We're building a house, guys. We're building a house. What's most important is what's coming, so just hang in there. The cornerstone is Christ. It's set. Here comes the foundation from the apostles and the prophets. Now time to start building the building. Start laying these people on the foundation and stacking up the walls. All being tied to the cornerstone. All resting on our foundation and forming a holy sanctuary. What a marvelous picture. Verse 22, and in closing, it says, In whom you also are being built together for Yahweh's dwelling in the Spirit. I want you to think back to the Old Testament for a second. We were all over this just a second ago in testimony. But uh, think back to the Old Testament for a second. I want you to think about the temples and how wonderful they were. How perfect and flawless they were built. Think about the tabernacle and how detailed it was. Jerry was talking about how detailed it was. I think last week Jerry said that uh, he wouldn't want to have that job because there's just way too much detail in it. But uh, Moses had a long list of things for the tabernacle. He had to get them right. He had to get them right. Yahweh says, be careful. Be careful what you look at. Be careful how you do this. And remember the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. Make sure that you do it right. Make sure you do it right. The reason that it had to be done right was because Yahweh's going to dwell among his people and he's going to do it in that tabernacle. I think about the, I don't even remember the chapter and the verse now, but I think about the time that um, it says that when, when Moses would go to the tent of meeting, everybody would come to the front of their tent and they would stand there and they would wait for him to go inside. It was, it's that important. The dwelling of Yahweh is that important. You can't, uh, you can't build a junky house for Yahweh to dwell in. We're the house, guys. The foundation's been laid by the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone was perfect. The gospel message is perfect. We're building the sanctuary. We're part of it. We're part of the sanctuary. But if Yahweh's going to dwell somewhere, it'll have to be perfect. You recall what happened in... Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, Eli, Eli and his sons, was it Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas, if I'm saying it right, Hophni and Phinehas, they, uh, they go off to war, and uh, Eli hadn't been keeping his kids straight, they've been, Matthew taught a message on the meat fork, they was dipping in there, getting too much meat, that's been years ago, two or three years ago, but uh, they're getting too much meat out of it, they're doing things they ought not be doing. Uh, in the temple, the temple's being run down. Eli is old. It said he's 90 years old. Well, everything's getting bad around Jerusalem, or Shiloh, I guess. The only reason that Yahweh's still coming to Shiloh is because Samuel's there. He's coming to see Samuel to tell him, I'm fixing to destroy Eli and his two sons and tear this temple all to pieces, and I'm fixing to leave. I'm fixing to get out of here. That's the only reason Yahweh was still there. And so the Israelites go off into battle against the Philistines. 
Next thing you know, here comes this soldier, and he runs back down the street, and Eli's sitting in his chair waiting on the side of the road to see the ark of Yahweh come by. And the little soldier runs up to him, and he says, the Philistines have overtaken us, and they've taken the ark of Yahweh. Eli falls back in his chair, breaks his neck. Dead man. Well, Phineas has a daughter. I mean, has a wife, Eli's daughter-in-law. And and the daughter-in-law is about to give birth. She's 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 with child. She's fixing to give birth. And uh, we, we all remember the story. But then she passes out, falls out on the ground, and she has the child. While she passed out, a male child. All right? And uh, they named him something. Do anybody know what he named him? Ichabod. It means that the glory of Yahweh has gone away. That's what happens when the when the um, when the tabernacle is not perfect, when the temple is not perfect. Yahweh doesn't dwell in something that's not perfect. He's a perfect and holy, mighty one. And if you want him to dwell in this tabernacle that we're part of, we need to be we need to be perfect. The only way that we'll ever be perfect is by purification of His only begotten Son. We're tied to Him. Yahweh's building His own temple now. The temple that Yahweh's dwelling in is not the temple that that uh, anybody else built, that Solomon built, or uh, and I'm losing my train of thought. Herod built, yeah. He's building his own temple now. He has said his son has the chief cornerstone. He had the prophets and the apostles lay the foundation, and he's begun building the walls with the saints, and he's forming us into a holy sanctuary. And Paul says in verse 22, you're being built together for Yahweh's dwelling in the Spirit. Oh, I pray, saints, that Yahweh would fill his sanctuary of believers with his Spirit. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, don't you want to be a part of what Yahweh delights in? Don't you want to be a part of that? Jerry, man, when you were standing up here talking about how you just desire to do that which is good, it just it makes me feel so good because I'm not on fire as Jerry is right now. I want to be. I want to be because at one time I was on fire as Jerry is. And I remember what it feels like to, to every time the truck stopped, I was like this. Every time that I stopped, there's a, there was a Bible in the bathroom. There was a Bible on the kitchen table. There was a Bible on the refrigerator. There was a Bible beside each bed. There was a Bible in the office. We couldn't work for reading the Bible. I remember a time like that for me. And I, and I think we go through seasons in life. I don't think you're always on top of the mountain. Sometimes you're down here. And I'm not where you are, Jerry, right now, but I'm glad to see you there, brother. I'm glad to see you there. I want somebody to desire righteous things. I want to I wanna be around people that's all they can talk about. That's who I want in the presence of me. Because, because I'm part of that building that that man is, and he may be tied right direct to that chief cornerstone. If I'll hang on to him long enough, I'll get some of what he's got. you know. And I, wanna, I want some of it. So uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that people like Jerry are on fire. Don't get mad when somebody comes in here on fire. Don't get jealous of them. Don't say, well, he's just fake. He's just, it'll wear back off in a little while. Man, that man's climbing. You hang on to him. He's climbing. Because in a little while, he'll stop, and you'll have to pull him up the rest of the hill, you know. So you be thankful. Be thankful that somebody's like that. I pray that Yahweh would fill his sanctuary with believers full of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, don't you want to be part of that? We're all building parts. We're all body parts. We're all fellow citizens. We're all joint heirs and members of Yahweh's household, and we are becoming the holy sanctuary of Yahweh. It's high time that we treat each other that way. Love your neighbor. He might be your neighbor in the kingdom. You never know. 
Treat people with kindness. Edify your brother. Let's build one brother up. Pray for one another. Don't beat him down. Don't see a brother who's down and say, well, he ain't no good anyway. Go after the lost sheep. Go get him. If you got one that's lost, go get him and bring him with you. Help him find his way home. That's what Yahweh did for all of us. We were all lost. Every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth was lost, destitute, and in despair. And the only way that you ever make it is that he draws you into his son, you believe in his son, and that's it. That's the only way you ever get there. And if he doesn't draw you, he just lets you go. So when you see somebody that uh, that's struggling in life, don't kick them while they're down. Because of who they are, pick them up. Pick them up and help them. He loved us. He cleansed us with the blood of his own son. He watched us, washed us and made us new. And he welcomed us into his household. Be compassionate towards people. Don't assume you're anything that somebody else isn't. I know I keep saying this, but don't be a Pharisee. Don't think that you have a direct ticket to the kingdom because of some lineage or because of your works in the law or because of anything you're done. Don't think that that's going to buy you some kind of way in. There are no more groups of people in here, Judite, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. Just believers and saints. That's it. That's all there is. There's just believers. All people have been reconciled together with Yahweh through His Son. And it's nothing that you or I have done. It's all that what Yahweh's done that's made it that way. When you look at someone who doesn't look like you, you, you might say that he's not part of the body. You might be looking at somebody who Yahweh's just not dealt with yet. It may be, it may be somebody that um, Yahweh wants you to go witness to. And you say, well, he's not one of us. I can't go over there and talk to that man. Christ, Christ died with sinners, tax collectors. Come after those who were poor in spirit, broken, contrite hearts. That's what he comes to. Not the ones who were big Bible people. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the professors in the law, not the ones that wore the long tassels or the phylacteries. He said the sick need a doctor. And uh, that's who we should be. Let's humble ourselves and look out for all people. I want to love people because it's my nature. I don't want to love people because I'm commanded to. I want it to be inside of me. Jerry's talking about what's inside of you. I want it to be inside of me. I want to look at somebody and no matter how wretched they are, no matter how bad they stink, no matter how ugly they are, no matter how much I really don't want them sitting in my living room, I want to have it in my heart to say, come in and eat with me. Come in and eat with me. You know, let me help you. Let me let me be some something to you when nobody when everybody else casts you to the side. Grab hold of that cornerstone and let the foundation of the apostles and the prophets be your foundation. Stand on the words of the gospel and don't be swayed. It's a sure foundation. Praise Yahweh for His goodness and His mercy every day. When you get up, praise Him for His goodness and His mercy every day. Be thankful that He had compassion on you to form you into part of His holy sanctuary. I love Yahweh. I want Him to love me. I want Him to love me so much. I want Him to put something in me that I just can't get off of me. I want Him to light a fire in me I can't put out. Because I'll put it out. You leave it up to me and I guarantee you I will snuff it out. But I want I want Him to put a fire in me that I just can't blow out. I don't want anything else in the world to matter. I think about it every day. I get up and go to work and I think, man, take 15 minutes and read your Bible. Just take 15 minutes and read your Bible. And you know what I do? I grab my Coke and my Reese's out of my refrigerator because that's my breakfast. I get my Coke and my Reese's out of my refrigerator. I grab my book and off to work I go. And I don't stop. I don't stop. I don't stop to pray. And when I get out the door, I think, I'll pray on the way to work. 
You know what I do? I pick up my telephone, and before you know it, the day started, I'm wide open, and I'm building something, I'm paying for something, I'm buying something, I'm moving something around, and I ain't stopped yet. Lunchtime comes, and I don't usually eat lunch, but if I do eat lunch, I think, well, I need to pray before I eat, you know, or after I eat. Guess what? Before you know it, the phone rings. I done missed that, too. Next thing you know, I'm laying in bed. It's 11.30 at night or 12 o'clock when I finally get stopped, and I said, man, I need to pray. And before you know it, I go to sleep, and that day passed. That day passed. All day long, I had it in my mind that I just wanted to pray three times a day, and I couldn't stop long enough to be Yahweh's servant. I couldn't do it for, for three times a day. That's terrible. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I'm telling on myself, but I mean, it is what it is. You know, there might be somebody else in here just as wicked as me. I don't know. But, um, man, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Pray that Yahweh put it in you that you can't get it off of you. I want him to put it on me that I can't get it off of him. Take everything I got. Make me the poorest man in the world. But give me what Elijah had. Give me the spirit of Elijah. Let me have that. I don't care about any monetary things. Had all that, done all that, been there, done that, I don't care anything about it. Take all that stuff away, but give me the spirit of Elijah and let me walk and let me be something. When somebody looks at me, they say, that man's eat up with Yahweh. He's eat up with it. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. We're a holy sanctuary. If I want Yahweh to dwell in this sanctuary, that's the whole context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, by the way, if you don't know. People talk about, talk about the temple, that we shouldn't defile the temple. It's not talking about putting uh, makeup on your body or sitting in bleach water. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about chewing tobacco or smoking cigarettes. It's not talking about defiling the temple that way. 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about... we. We, should, we shouldn't defile the temple with any other gospel, any other message. The message we should believe, the message that we preach, should be the gospel message that was put out by the, the apostles and the prophets. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 means. But anyway, I, w- I, want that to be, I want that to be what I stand on. And I want Yahweh to just get all over me. Yahweh, Father, we thank you. I thank you so much for um, all that you've done for me, I thank you for the little bit of desire that I do have, Father. I'm, I'm thankful for that which you've instilled in me. Yahweh, I pray that you'd light a fire on each and every one of us in this building. I pray that we would be so on fire that you, for you that everybody would know who we are and what we are just because of that which is living within us. Father, we're thankful for the cornerstone, most of all. And Father, I'm thankful for the obedience of the prophets and the apostles for laying the foundation, the perfect gospel message that was given to them to lay, to lay for us. Father, I pray that we would just uh, constantly work at being sanctified. And Father, I pray that you would sanctify us. Make us what you'd have us to be. Let us be a holy sanctuary that's, uh, that's fit for you to dwell in. Father, come fill our hearts. We love you. We're so thankful for you and thankful for your son. We give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask all these things in your holy son's name. Amen.